Before we open our Bibles, I, I would like to mention that we just heard uh, two tremendous pieces of music, the uh, Ralph on Williams and William Howe hymn for all the saints based on uh, Hebrews 11, uh, but also uh, Isaac Watts' How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Uh, for all the saints is just a tremendous hymn. It's difficult to sing. And I find that uh, churches uh, no longer sing it as much because it's difficult. You really have to be able to follow uh, the music uh, from the hymnal to, to sing it, to get the phrasing correctly. Uh, but also, how sweet and awful is the place, and that, the tune we use with that is a, is a very simple tune, and yet what is taught there is just profound as it's a, a paraphrase and a hymn about the parable of the marriage feast and the doctrine of election. And that is what Isaac Watts is describing there in that, in that hymn. And I want to, though they've gone, uh, I thank the choir at the first service for the, the great job they did with that hymn for all the saints in, in bringing that before us. Let's turn now in the book of James to chapter 5. Uh, James 5, this is the last of, of uh, two sermons I have remaining in the book of James this week and Lord willing next week. And today we're on... We're looking at the first, really the first uh, half of, of the chapter, page 1013 uh, of James 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 12, though our attention will be on verses 1 through 11. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let us pray together. Our Father, you tell us that even as the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and we know that it does. And we pray with the psalmist that, that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name. Amen. Perseverance is very difficult in the Christian life. M much of this book of James, if you've been with us the past few months, is written to help us persevere in the Christian life, to persevere in trials, 
As we are tested through spiritual warfare, through temptation, our own besetting sins, like showing favoritism to others, he dealt with that, our, our speech and how our tongue can get us into trouble. When we're discouraged, when others let us down, when we let ourselves down, perseverance is difficult. The letter is written to Christians who were scattered about the Mediterranean from Jerusalem after the persecution had begun. It is not directed to one particular church, but for all believers. And the passage here is divided into two parts for our purposes today. The first paragraph are some warnings to the, to the rich who were oppressing the poor. And then the second part is encouragement for those who are being oppressed to trust in the faithfulness of God. So let's look first and briefly at verses 1 to 6 as some words directed toward the rich. There's nothing here and there's nothing in Scripture that condemns being wealthy or the acquiring of wealth if it's done legitimately. But there are warnings throughout the Bible as to how that wealth can affect us and how it can affect others. And that's what's in play here that James is addressing. The emphasis in this passage, the entire passage, is the coming judgment of God. It's the coming judgment of God, the end time judgment. The Bible says all of history is moving toward a great day, a day of judgment, when every knee will bow, every knee from the past, present, and future, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, the Bible tells us God will judge all people who have ever lived. Some will be sent away from God for everlasting punishment. And others will be received in his presence to stay there forever. It is a terrifying and overwhelming thought to ponder. But it's true. And we do ourselves and we do others no favor by ignoring it or acting as though it doesn't exist. So James is addressing that day of judgment with such phrases in verse 1 as the miseries that are coming. In verse 3, it mentions the last days. Verse 5 alludes to a day of slaughter. Verse 7, James says to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. So we are reminded over and over that Jesus is coming back. And more specifically, he's going to do at least two things when he returns. First, he's going to judge the sinful and rebellious. Notice James has not addressed these people as brothers. Most commentators I read believe that the opening part of this chapter is addressed to unbelievers. There's application for Christians, but there's no reference like he uses in verse 7 to brothers and over and over those who are in the faith. He's addressing unbelievers, and so the opening phrase, come now, you rich, weep and howl. So that's a strange word picture. Well, it's, it's what the Old Testament prophets, some of them would say that. They would pronounce, on God's behalf, pronounce judgment on pagan nations, and they would use that kind of terminology to weep and howl. So it's a warning. It is a warning of approaching judgment that is going to come. You and I know that it would not be right if you or I knew of some approaching danger and we saved ourselves, but we neglected to tell others. If you have family and friends in your house and 
you happen to see that the house is on fire before anyone else does, you, you have a moral obligation to warn others to say, flee. Flee the danger that is at hand rather than just saving yourself. You remember back in 2012, that large ship, the Concordia, that hit a rock and began to sink uh, over in Europe and uh, the captain abandoned the ship when there were 300 passengers. Y'all remember that? You know, it was the largest <coughs> uh, salvage of a ship that's ever taken place. It took three times the money to salvage it as it cost to build it. The captain, though, he abandoned ship. But, well, he had a good explanation. He said that he was standing by the rail and a wave called the boat to do that. He fell over and happened to land in an empty seat in a life ship. Well, that, that makes sense. <clears throat> that was his explanation. But here is a warning, and James is addressing both directly rich unbelievers who are oppressing the poor, and then there's a subtle indirect warning to wealthy believers who are ignoring the poor. Again, James is not condemning wealth here. He's focusing on the sinful use of wealth. So here are the four accusations I'll just mention <clears throat> against the unbelieving rich. First, they're going to be judged for hoarding their wealth. They are hoarding their wealth in verses 2 and 3. They're, they're storing away in barns, to use the image from Jesus' teaching. And James says all that money, all that stuff, and wealth in those days was measured in land and in clothes and in precious metals. You say clothes? Right, certain dyes like purple that were very rare and the clothes were very expensive. And people would display their wealth in these garments and, and they, they were their investments in a sense. And James says all of that stuff, all the possessions, is rotting. The clothes will be eaten by moths. And then he says that your gold is corroding and we may scratch our heads and say, wait a minute, gold and silver don't rust. Iron rust and other metals rust, but not, not gold. But that's the point. James is saying even that which looks so permanent to us as gold or silver is, is rusting away, it's wasting away. And he says, you have hoarded. His words are, you have hoarded, you have built barns, you are not concerned for others, and your day is coming, and you think that's your life, and it's all going to burn up. So we can see other parables in the Bible that teach that, like the rich fool who did not prepare for his own death, though he was preparing for his a lengthy life with all his possessions. Second, James accuses them not only of hoarding their wealth, but of cheating workers. And this is really the key verse, verse 4. In the days when land was concentrated in the hands of perhaps relatively few large landowners, and if you were a person that depended on that land, you were, as it mentions here, a person who mowed, you helped with the harvest, and you lived with your family, and you lived uh, week to week, and if this landowner came and said, uh, I'm going to pay you this Friday. You'll be paid this wage for a week's work. And the Friday comes, and he says, I'm sorry, I'm unable to pay you today. I had something happen, and I can't pay you. You're in trouble because you are dependent. Your family's dependent on that income for food, for shelter, to take care of them. And the landowner, guess what he's doing? 
he's, he's lying to you. He's doing this by fraud, and he's spending it on himself, on a lavish lifestyle. And God condemns that. He says, you, in this verse, you kept back by fraud. You were accumulating wealth while other people were suffering, providing it for you, he says. The third accusation, he accuses them of living in self-indulgence. Verse 5, the latter part, is a, is a graphic picture. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He's saying, you rich people who are oppressing others, you're like cows gorging on food, and later this afternoon you're going to be slaughtered. And you're content right now, and you're fulfilled, but there is a judgment coming. This is a warning. This is a language of warning. And I'll say this especially to young people. Many temptations which we face, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, if you have much life experience behind you, you know that, hey, I'm, I'm tempted to use this, this drug or, or this substance. And, but you know that, hey, th this, could, this could get bad in a hurry. You know, it could wreck my life. Or I'm tempted to be unfaithful in my marriage. Well, that Bible says it could cost you your life. It could wreck a family. It could lose my job. There are many temptations that if we back up for a moment, we'll say, man, there's a downside to this. It isn't worth it just from the self-preservation standpoint, much less the sinful standpoint. But wealth doesn't show a hook. And you and I, because of when and where we've grown up in America and in this time, we think everybody would like to be wealthy. That is, a, that is something worth pursuing. Think of all the good you could do. Think of all the people you can help. Think of how you can provide for your family. Think of all the options it could provide. And we don't see the hooks. And so Jesus warned. He warned over and over. It's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What did he mean? It's meaning when we're wealthy, we begin to depend on it. And we begin to think, I'm secure. Why? Because of bank account or how much I have in investments. Uh, or I feel very confident. And you think to yourself, subtly, I don't need God. It opens up options that sometimes work against us and how we use time, how we relate to people. It can cause an arrogant attitude for others. That's almost a natural byproduct. If God doesn't work in our heart, we look down on others and think, well, if you just did what I did, you'd have the same result I have. Not taking into account God's providence and things like that. So they're hooks with wealth. And though it doesn't condemn being wealthy, it brings with it temptations that are not there to the same degree if we don't have wealth or in their pursuit of wealth. We think about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed because of the moral abominations that were happening, the sexual abominations in those cities. And yet, when we go back to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16, it says that in Sodom and Gomorrah they were destroyed because the people had plenty of food and comfortable security but did not support the, support the poor and needy. One person I read said they were overfed and unconcerned. They did not view their, their lavishness as a responsibility to say, okay, God's provided this for me. How can I help other people? 
In a few weeks, Donnie St. Germain will be here to preach the closing Sunday of our missions conference. I believe that's four, three Sundays from today, I think. Most of you know Donnie. We try to have him here every year or two to preach. He and his brother, Lewis grew up in Haiti. They received their college educations here in the States. Both have engineering degrees. Lewis went back to Haiti and is a pastor of a very, very influential, as in large, church in the city of Kais. Thousands of people are influenced by that ministry. Lewis has preached here, but Donnie's the one we have the, the strongest connection with. Uh, Donnie lives in Orlando with his family and goes back and forth to Haiti where they are planting churches. They have orphanages, they have schools, they have a university, they have a seminary. It's just remarkable for those of you that know what's going on there. Well, after the 2010 earthquake that devastated the country, and you remember they, the government there was in disarray. Uh, the president seemed to have no influence or suggestions, the president of Haiti. And many people went to Lewis and said, you need to be the president of our country. You need to allow us to nominate you and elect you to be the president, Lewis St. Germain. And Lewis said no. And the reason he said no was because he said, they have watched, he said, I've watched person after person who probably was well-intentioned and even religiously convicted at times, having religious convictions, who became presidents and in no time there was corruption. And he saw that that kind of power and influence in that setting, he felt that'll corrupt my heart. I'm not interested. How many of us would have the wisdom to say, I can't go there. My heart can't handle it. That's what Lewis did. So here's a warning to the wealthy. Fourth, the fourth accusation is the rich will be judged for condemning men. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, we, we tend to think he's not talking like you've taken the knife and actually killed a person. In, in the Jewish world, to deprive a person of the necessities of life was the same as murder. And if you had, once again, these employees and you said, I'm not paying you, I can't. The, bank, the bank's gone up on the interest rates, I can't pay you today. And you lied to them and they go without and you're funding your lavish lifestyle. Uh, he basically says, not only are you wrong, you're committing murder by what you're putting those, those people into. So I think we should always look at any acquisition of what we have and think, it, it, is this been gained legitimately? Okay, shift gears now to the second part. And that's a word to the faithful. And some of these were the oppressed. They were the laborers, the harvesters who'd mowed and had not been paid. And they were probably thinking, does God not hear? Does God not see? We cry out to him and, and the, the wicked just gains more influence and we're being faithful and, and God seems silent. And what does he say in verse 7? He says, be patient. He brings up the second coming, but more in terms of you need to be patient. Be patient that God is faithful, and he gives three pictures of patience. First, he says to be patient like a farmer waiting on a harvest. The farmer is completely dependent on God, waiting for the harvest. Too much rain can cause the crops to rot. Too little rain causes drought. A frost kills the crops. 
Talk about needing patience. And so the illustration that we're to be learned from the farmer, it reminds us that faith involves trusting God when we can't control it. We can't control the process. Just like these people that were being oppressed and they were questioning God's faithfulness, he's saying be patient because you cannot control what's going on. While we wait patiently and endure, we may be tempted to complain and speak evil against one another. We, we need to remember to do that. So he says in verse 9, remember the Lord is coming and we want to be faithful with what we can control. Second, he tells us to be patient like a prophet speaking the truth. When the prophets would go out to declare God's truth, they did not expect immediate results. Any more than any of us that teach or preach or share our faith with others, we know that like a farmer, we're hopefully distributing seed. And hopefully God in his mercy may cause it to grow up and land on good ground and, and bear fruit. I'll tell you in a few moments about being at Reverend Jim Baird's funeral service this past Thursday, but after that service was over, uh, on Tuesday night and at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, I, I was speaking with a, a longtime friend of mine that I hadn't seen in quite a while, and I was listening to him talk to the music director at First Presbyterian in Jackson. And when we were talking to Mr. Wyman, that's the music director, he's been there many, many years, he said, so you two guys, I forgot, you, you're part of that group that came out of Gadsden, Alabama. There's a town of about 45,000 people over in northeast Alabama. In the late 1960s and late early 1970s, there and here and elsewhere, God was doing something special. But we didn't know it because it looked normal. And that was there were repeated people being converted on a regular basis. It was just common to hear. Did you hear about so-and-so? You know, the troublemaker in high school who's become a Christian. And out of that movement that was strictly of the Lord, it wasn't centered around one person, this is what I heard my friends say to him. Eighty-four people went into vocational ministry. Now that may not sound like a lot to you. Small Alabama town, 84 people became pastors, missionaries, serving with parachurch organizations, teachers in seminaries, all over. Did it happen immediately? No. The seed was planted, and in some cases, like me, it was years later. So like the prophet speaking the truth, we must be patient. And 30 says we need patience like Job, hoping in God's purpose. James says, you have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. Well, what was the outcome? Have you read the book of Job? Some have. Even if you haven't, you may know the story. The story is basically told in the first two or three chapters about what happened to Job. And Satan comes before God and says, you turn me loose on him. Your faithful servant down there, you'll, you'll see. He'll curse you before you're finished. You take away his wealth. You take away his family. You take away his health. He quits living a cush life. We'll see how faithful he is at that point. We have 42 chapters in the book of Job. We get to chapter 42, and guess what? There's still no explanation. God never says, well, here's why I let Satan do it. But we know this, at the end, Job repents of some of his attitudes toward God during the discussions that take place over those 38 uh, chapters or so. 
And at the end, he declares, the Lord is indeed very compassionate and merciful, exactly what it says in verse 11. He came to the conclusion, after all that suffering, after all the trials, that God is compassionate and merciful, despite what is happening to me. If you're going through a trial now, whether it's being oppressed by another or in your workplace or, or whatever trial it might be that's causing you to question the faithfulness of God, is does God hear me? Does God see me? You need to remember, God is compassionate and merciful. Some of us watched the very disturbing uh, or kept up with the disturbing account of this Nigerian pastor that was kidnapped just a little more than four weeks ago. Uh, Luan Andimi was held for ransom by the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram in Nigeria. And then as their deadline was approaching his captors, they had demanded one million euros be paid by the Christian Association for his freedom. And it wasn't paid. And so they made a video interviewing Andimi and he, he, they wanted him to plead that they would pay the ransom and that the people would, that would see the video and secure his release. But it didn't happen, and he was, actually, he was beheaded two days later. But in that video, he said he's not discouraged because, quote, all conditions that one finds himself in is in the hands of God. And he said, by the grace of God, I'll be together with my wife and my children and all my colleagues. And he said, even if the opportunity has not been granted, even if it doesn't happen, even if I'm not released, he says, maybe it is the will of God. So when the ransom wasn't paid, his captors murdered him. But we can be certain of this. We can be certain of this. Pastor Andimi's cries were heard at the ears of the Lord of hosts. And that story is not over. So I want to end with these words from John Blanchard. When he ends a section on the book of James, on this section, he writes... We live in a world of affliction, pressure, and persecution of one kind or another. There are problems beyond our understanding. There are times when we are tempted to despair, to throw in the towel, to turn aside from the pathway of obedience. And when we are, let us encourage ourselves by remembering that the Lord is coming, that we are going to be with Him forever, and at the end of the day, we will be able to look back even on our darkest hour and confess that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He says, let us, Blanchard says, let us learn to say in faith, surely goodness and mercy and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Now before we move to the benediction and doxology, I want to I take a few moments to tell you some things about Reverend Jim Baird and the funeral service this past Tuesday night. Most of you don't really know who I'm talking about, or perhaps a good number of you, but many of you were greatly influenced by this man who pastored here from 1972 to 1980 through the years. We tried to have, even after he left here, we tried to have him back every year or two to preach, and we did so until he was basically unable to do so. But he passed away at, at age uh, 91, uh, a little over a week ago, in the funeral service was this past Tuesday night at First Presbyterian in Jackson. You can go online, they have it archived, and you can watch it. And I would urge you to do so. 
Uh, Barbara and I drove over representing our church and we made it clear to the family we were here on behalf of First Presbyterian Church and everybody sends their love. If you watch the service, you saw all of that. But what I want to tell you about is something that happened before that. At noon, there was, a, there was a luncheon for the family, and we were invited, along with a few others, to join the extended family for lunch. Now, the Bairds had four sons, as you know. So all of those sons are married, so their grandchildren, I don't know that there were any great-grandchildren, but the grandchildren are in their 20s, and uh, from late teens up probably to early 30s. So it was a big crowd of people, and a lot of other extended family were there. After the luncheon where we got to speak to Jane Baird and, and, and all the family members that, that we knew, we went to a graveside service at, at about 2.30 in the afternoon. The, the, the service that night was going to be at 6 p.m. At the graveside service, something happened that none of us anticipated. That was that the pastor, Joseph Wheat, a friend of mine, he used to serve here in Augusta, he was, the, he was leading the graveside service. And the family had arranged for any of the, anybody that wanted to, to come. It was an open microphone. There was, there was no microphone. And to say anything you'd like to about Reverend Baird, uh, but to keep it under a minute. I'm not sure what I was expecting. I think I was expecting to hear people talk about his preaching, his teaching, his pastoring. That really wasn't mentioned. It was grandchild after grandchild after grandchild after daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law, talking about this man who had been their number one cheerleader, who always told them how proud he was of them, and who basically, as some of, some of the daughters-in-law said, I think he loved me more than my own father. It, it was moving. My handkerchief was soaked by the, by the end. But those of us standing around, especially that are parents and grandparents, you know, there's a saying that as people age, they often get sweeter or not so sweet. And he obviously got sweeter. I think even the sons were a little surprised at what was being said. But it reminded all of us in an indirect way, those of us that are parents or grandparents, of the tremendous influence for good we can have in the lives of future generations. I remember Reverend Baird uh, because not a, he was a preacher in my home church. He was in Gadsden from the late 60s to 1972 when this church stole him. I was between the ages of 9 and 16. I don't really remember his preaching. I remember seeing him in the pulpit. Here's what I remember. I came to a point and I told my mother I would like to become a member of the church. I'd come to faith in Christ. Uh, so uh, I would walk from my junior high school campus about a half a mile or so to First Presbyterian Church, and I met with him uh, personally, one-on-one, after school for once a week, several weeks. And he went through the catechism with me and taught me about the Christian faith. And then on a Sunday night, after several meetings and then being examined by the session, one of the most nerve-wracking things to this day, I can still see the whole room full of older men and me sitting in front of them by myself. And um, on a Sunday night, I was, our, our sanctuary was a lot like this, and I was standing on the front pew, and he baptized me right there. And uh, those are my prime memories from early on about Reverend Baird. 
On the way back from Jackson, Barbara and I on Wednesday night driving through the rain, if you remember it rained all day, the storms came through. We stopped in Montgomery late in the afternoon to see my sister who was operating on for cancer about 10 days ago. And we stopped at her house, her and her husband were there, she and her husband. And, and uh, we, she was asking me all about the funeral and now she not heard Reverend Baird since she was in high school. And she said, you know what I remember about him? It was that benediction he always did. I said, he did it back then? I thought he started that in Macon. Oh, she said, oh, no, every sermon it was always, oh, and she kind of, you know, could say it. Uh, she's in her latter 60s and remembers that from high school. And she said, where is that? And I said, well, that's in Jude. Jude has one chapter. I said, that's Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now, the benediction, for those that wonder, and I have people visit our church, and they'll, if they don't come from a background, a church background like this, they'll say, what's this deal at the end, benediction, and you holding your hands up? I've been asked that a number of times. I say, well, here, here's where it comes from. Uh, the word benediction means good word, a blessing. And the first one we have is in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, where God's people would gather, and there was a priest named Aaron. And God tells him, after they've gathered, to lift his hands and pronounce this blessing from God. It's not from the priest at that time or from the preacher today, it's from God. And so it's a blessing, some consider it a prayer. You'll see people bow their heads. Some look up, as we're all to do. And some of you have been taught, uh, and you should feel that freedom that the preacher's privilege is to pronounce it and yours is to receive it, and so you do so with open hands, like that. So I thought it might be fitting today for the last time, I imagine that we would stand and hear Reverend Baird's benediction from Jude. So please stand with me now for the benediction, and then we'll sing the doxology. Oh, people, receive his blessing. For it is now unto the Lord Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling. It is now unto the Lord Jesus, who is able at your death able to present you sinless before his throne of grace in heaven with exceeding great joy. To the only wise God who is our Savior, unto him let there be glory, majesty, may he have dominion and power both now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs> 